From Lawson Media, this is Building a Unicorn, the show exploring what it takes to build a big global business. I'm Christopher Lawson. In the startup world, a lot of the information you'll find is on building a successful for-profit company. That is a business that might be providing a service or a product and then making a tidy margin. But not every business is about making money. Not-for-profit enterprises carry their own set of challenges because your company is there for another reason. You have a mission, a purpose that you stand behind and all the money that you make as an organisation goes back into the business to fulfil that mission. And for today's founder, that mission hits really close to home. Steve Bevington is the Managing Director of Community Housing Limited, a non-profit which provides affordable housing for low-income families around the world. We operate across Australia in six different states, uh, but no territories as yet. And we also uh, operate in seven other countries, largely developing countries, which all have problems with affordable housing, much like Australia does, but often less capacity to deliver on that. Steve was the son of a diplomat, which meant his family was always moving around depending on where his dad was serving. He lived in Europe, in South Korea, the UK, and he was always having to go to new schools and needing to adapt to a new style of learning because each school was different and valued Steve's education in a different way. My father started off um, as a diplomat, so certainly when I was a young boy, I think he was doing other things before that. And so he, we moved around and lived uh, close to or part of embassy compounds. And uh, that's, that was my life as a young child. I didn't see a lot of my parents because I was being brought up by nannies because they were so busy. And that was my sort of early beginnings. And also meant that uh, because I continued to move around, uh, and my father continued to leverage off his... Uh, international experience in his subsequent career and he uh he sort of traveled with that and we moved around with him but that was more in europe and uh such like so i went to i think i counted 11 different schools and by the time uh, i'd been through uh a lot of those i had just about sort of given up on education trying to keep abreast of being educated in so many different countries and uh, so many different systems and such like meant that uh, the thing I learned most in school was to be adaptable and uh, to be to be able to adapt to my surroundings, which I think is uh, the same case today. Through your through your teen years, did you have a picture about like what you wanted your life? to be like, um, you know, once you were done with, with school? Did you have a picture about like a career or a job or something that you wanted to do? Oh, yes. Uh, amusingly enough, uh, as uh, in my early teens and late primary early teens, I wanted to be an archaeologist. And uh, I was absolutely obsessed with uh, ancient uh, history and uh, ancient societies. When Steve was 16, he left school and went out on his own. He was living near Cambridge because that's where his family lived, although he had no real desire to go and study at the university. 
Well, I didn't have a lot of a plan apart from enjoying myself. Uh, I used to clean offices um, at uh, six to eight in the morning and then in, in the evening uh, did the same and I used to basically um, take care of myself and earn my own income and then do the studies that I needed to do and then just move around uh, as I wanted. So I was a fairly um, relaxed character, I think. Uh, my mother, of course, wanted me to go off and uh, uh, become trained as a chartered accountant, as they call it that. I gave that a go, but when I found out that uh, the chartered, chartered accountancy company, which uh, I was employed at and doing my articles with, uh, solely did um, tax accounts for lords and ladies in the UK, I decided that uh, I didn't really want to work for such a organization and so um, gave that up and became a bus conductor instead. It didn't take long before Steve started to embrace the idea of couch surfing. He'd spend some nights on a friend's couch and then move on to the next and this soon became a way of life. I was pretty much uh, from the age of 16, 17 onwards I was pretty much uh, into routinized uh, couch surfing and uh, yes and, you know, leading quite a in, uh, enjoyable, if you're slightly isolated life, doing that kind of thing. Had some small coterie of friends. And, uh, yes, so from probably the age of 16, 17 or so, I was out of home. I understand that you you ended up at Oxford at some point, living in uh, living in a spare room. How did you end up down there? What What was your situation like then? Yeah, I had a friend who I knew closely in Cambridge. And it's interesting because neither of us were associated with the university. But, uh, um, and I moved down to Oxford with a friend and essentially I stayed in a room of, which was over a holiday, uh, the holiday period between terms of a Oxford student. And uh, that's how I came down to Oxford, really. And uh, I was... I was working down there. I was sometimes in employment, sometimes not. Uh, this was the beginning of a time when a recession started to occur in Britain and one which became more and more deeply ingrained over the years. And uh, so employment became harder and harder to secure uh, in the mid-70s. And so, uh, yes, this is probably the beginning of my time where I really became more formally in the uh, category of being homeless. From 1973 to 1975, the UK fell into recession driven by a global oil crisis. And it was right at this time that the student whose room Steve was staying in needed his room back because classes were starting up again, leaving Steve out on his own. He looked around for an affordable rental property, but couldn't find anything, so he had to improvise. Really, that's uh, when I started to... uh, We started to squat, I and my friends. We started to go squatting and we'd break into empty houses, live there a while until we were evicted. And... uh, and then move to the next one. There were quite a few empty derelict, semi-derelict homes. Derelict would be too uh, much of a description, but they had been empty for quite a while and were not in working order. 
Right. Just empty houses that would be a reasonably comfortable place for you to to stay while you were, um, you know, trying to figure out your sort of more long-term situation. And when you're sort of moving around and when you're, you know, living pretty much hand-to-mouth and you're picking up a bit of employment here or there, one never even thinks about a long-term situation. I mean, it never occurred to me to think beyond the next week or two. I was just thinking uh, on my feet at any one time. And uh, that was the life we really led. And so, I mean, we would... When we were um, squatting, we would sort of live for the length of time that we thought we would be able to stay in a place before we were evicted. And uh, usually that would be in the realms of around about two to three months or so. Was that just what you were doing, just squatting the whole time? Or were you also having to, you know, at times live on the streets as well? Well, um, after about a year of that experience, uh then uh they brought in new laws in Britain to stop the likes of me from you know sort of breaking to places and staying there called the trip criminal trespass law and so the our capacity to be able to go squatting willy nilly um ended really and that's when I really started to uh, move onto the streets. It wasn't as quite as simple as that because I decided to seek out a trade and become skilled in that. So I lived for a while um, in a room while I was being trained as a carpenter or so. But um, after that, without there being much work around, the recession was really beginning to bite around about those times. Um, I really sort of went out on on the streets pretty much. It wasn't quite as simple as that. At times I was stayed in complete derelict homes in the country, which had never been lived in for many, many years or so. Um, I don't know anybody who would necessarily have laid claim to own the places. And other times I would be actually sleeping on the streets of uh, cities such as London or in Cambridge or... or such like or so. So, And, of course, the period of homelessness on the streets was never a, a continuous period. Um, there would be times when I'd be staying with friends or whatever. But uh, there was there was a period of my life like in that, that those circumstances. And after this short break, Steve's journey with homelessness takes him to London. And then into the world of politics. Steve Bevington had spent several years squatting in abandoned buildings, living on people's couches, and occasionally sleeping on the streets. But as the recession in the UK lifted, it became easier to find work, and by 1978, Steve says that he'd found some fairly consistent employment, and that allowed him to make the journey to London. I eventually got fairly steady work and was able to get 
some form of private accommodation, a room or so, uh, during that time, and then went moved to London and uh, stepped back into the world of squatting or so, which then moved to what they call short-life accommodation. I mean, we started off a cooperative down uh, one inside of a street in central London, uh, a cooperative that is to this day, which uh, is there to house uh, um, homeless single people. And I'm proud to say the cooperative still does that um, today, uh, with that we established it in 1979. And so how long ago was that? That's uh, 40, 41 years ago. And t- today, that is the same. It's doing the same job. How did that sort of come about? How did that cooperative come together? How did that idea sort of spark for you? It was really that uh, I'd come to London and was, you know, initially sleeping rough then, uh, you know, squatting out uh, empty council housing. Uh, there had been a sudden end to a lot of development plans of councils through a change of government. Um, the Thatcher government came in, which changed the capacity of councils to be able to refurbish, purchase and build uh, council housing. And that left quite a lot of housing which was empty in a poor state of repair. So I and a you know, groups of young people took over a side of the street. I think there were 12 houses altogether. And uh, in a place called Georgiana Street and London Borough of Camden. And we, you know, formed kind of share accommodation. And then, you know, we, we also moved into this housing uh, individually uh, and separately. But after uh, about uh, a year, we all came together as a group of young people and formed a cooperative. I think I had researched and I and one or two other people had researched the laws felt that we needed to get organized and needed to approach the council that we could sort of take care of the buildings before um, before they needed to repair them and to move people off the waiting list into them. And so we advocated for that and that advocacy continued. And every, every sort of uh, few months, there was always a threat of being... Uh, evicted as a group of people, but we plans one way or the other didn't uh, eventuate or the money wasn't there for the council and a 10-year sort of struggled on. And eventually, I think, uh, around about 10 years later, I'd already left and gone to Australia. The cooperative actually gained a degree of tenure and was able to get some funds as a housing association, under Housing Association funding and was able to refurbish and repair all the houses. So, and to this day, um, those, many of the people are still there, as were there 40 years ago. Through all this time, Steve became increasingly active in local politics, to the point where he was even elected to the council and became head of the local housing authority. He was finally in a position where he could make a significant difference on the problem that he had personally struggled with. We were part of a larger movement of young people who didn't have any access to housing, uh, needed to live somewhere, and the priority, quite reasonably, was young families 
or families more generally on the waiting list, so no single young people could actually get any rights to get into housing and there was no private rental tenure worth speaking of which was um, affordable. And so really I think young people took their um, accommodation needs into their own hands. I was quite concerned about the ongoing um, insecurity of just about everybody and it became more apparent to me how much insecurity dug into my capacity to plan and take care of my family. And so I uh, entered local politics and then through being elected was that uh, became the head of the housing authority there, which had around about 38,000 houses under management. So my goal when I sort of entered the council and became the head of the housing authority uh, was to try and improve the position of single people in accommodation, but I never really succeeded because the demands of the homeless generally was so huge that it was very difficult for the council to manage anything at all and to manage what was an extremely difficult situation. Steve was part of the council from 1984 to 1988. He was still in the co-op for the first half of his tenure, but by the end he'd moved his family to another part of London. In the late 80s, his family was looking at the political situation in the UK and decided to make the move to Australia, where Steve and his wife thought their children would receive a better education. And because of his experience in housing politics, Steve was soon able to land a job with the Victorian government. It was great. I was made coordinator of their rental house and co-op programs and uh, and given I'd had some experience with cooperatives in uh, London, I, um, I really enjoyed the opportunity to try and boost that uh, program. When I arrived, there was uh, um, 16 houses uh, under management uh, in this common equity rental cooperative program, uh, you know, and only 38 cooperatives uh, two and a half years later. There was 900 houses under management uh, uh, with uh, 90, 90 cooperatives or so. And uh, and so uh, I really managed to act as a, a bit of a one-man ginger group in, inside the government uh, advocating for more funding for cooperative housing and the and the program grew exponentially during that period. In the early 90s, Australia went through its own recession, leaving many people without work and making the need for affordable housing ever more important. But by 1992, the government had started reducing its workforce to deal with the economic situation at hand. So Steve decided to take a redundancy so he could spend the next year building a house. Well, Community Housing Limited, um, I, I left in 1992 and uh, I was part of a one of the solutions to try and reduce government expenditure given the, um, given the uh, reduction in you know, the change in the economy or so was to request voluntary redundancy. And I, so I left uh, the employment of the government and then... I spent about a year building a house uh, or part of a house to live in 
and then uh, looked around for a job after that, and uh, this job came up, which was really a startup, you know, starting up Community Housing Limited. There was just a uh, interim board of directors and the constitution and a small grant, and that was the beginning of Community Housing Limited. And what was the what was the goal of the business at that stage? Like, what was your job going to entail? The job was a response to uh, a small part of the Brian Howe, the Deputy Prime Minister's National Housing Strategy. The large part of the National Housing Strategy was the introduction of Commonwealth Rental Assistance, and there was a very small element which was uh, taking a, an, a part of the grant the federal government provides to the states for developing you know, public housing and uh, trying to develop up some community housing projects. The way the Victorian government uh, decided to do that was it decided to fund a number of agencies which would assist community groups to put together small housing projects. And Community Housing Limited was one of those six agencies at the time. I uh, was employed and my job was to go around and assist groups to put together housing projects. I'd had a very diverse background, so I knew quite a lot about building. I knew a lot about um, organising projects. I knew about housing need. I knew about uh, putting together proposals. I knew about advocating for such. So that's what I did. And so I secured employment and put together and received the funding for five small projects and which were then implemented and within about a year or so um, the government closed down the program so <laughs> so my our main source of income was gone you know so there we are so uh, we got a little bit of grant funding and the capacity to develop some projects for community groups and then that was the end of that <laughs> so what was the ne- what was the next stage of like how are you going to get get income coming into the business so that you could continue to develop more housing well, um, what had happened with the final project that we developed was that we, we, we designed some housing for a group of disabled people who had very, very uh, difficult, specific needs. They had balance problems, would uh, easily um, fall over and potentially damage themselves. So we designed some housing and also the... The, the group of people had often social issues and didn't like to be together. So we designed a project which would suit their needs, uh, that they was very soft internally. There wasn't a, lots of hard edges for them to damage themselves on. And also they could live uh, separately, but also be supervised. So um, it was a great success. And uh, as a project with its particular design, and the design was copied by many other um, projects done by other people afterwards. So we got a little bit of a reputation of designing disability housing. And I went out, we were almost a, a business at that time where we went out and designed housing uh, for people with disabilities. Um, we At that time, the... The Health and Community Services Department was separate from the Housing Department, and so we uh, went to the 
the health and community services, which was going through a big deinstitutionalization process at the time. And they wanted a lot of facilities designed. And we designed up facilities and then the housing department would fund them. And so it worked pretty well for the next two to three years. Community Housing Limited specifically focuses on building affordable housing for low-income families. But given how expensive real estate can be, what even is an affordable house? Okay, so this, is, this has always been an issue of contention. Affordable to whom is the first question. Like, um, you know, a mansion is affordable to a very rich person, but not affordable to somebody else. So it's, it's been a big debate around the place about what is affordable housing. And eventually, um, the, the Cognizanti have decided that affordable housing is a housing which doesn't cost more than 30% of the income of people in the bottom 40% of income earners in society. So that is really... That is the agreed definition. Then within that, there is housing which is for the, the poorest in society and uh, housing is for what we call low-income key workers who would be more up to the uh, 30 or 40% of income earners in society. So there is a, a varied area in that. In public housing... Is largely for the poorest, and in Australia, the public housing is for people uh, on Centrelink benefits because all people who uh, don't have an income can at least have that kind of income. And the and 25% of their Centrelink benefit plus their Commonwealth rental assistance is the price they pay for their housing. That is significantly less than, let's say, cost of housing, certainly in a lot of metropolitan centres. Now, at the upper echelons of it, uh, we would charge 75% of the market rent. And that might might be similar to the cost of housing for people on Centrelink benefits in places like Launceston, but it may be far... Uh, in excess of the people in public housing in uh, parts of, let's say, Sydney or Melbourne. That's a very long answer, but uh, that gives you an idea of the quite technical. And how do we decide to do things? Well, um, we usually are seeking to meet the housing needs of a specific group of people. And uh, we look at their income needs. They're always either the poor or key workers between those groups. And we we try and put together projects, certainly which meet their needs. They're not going to pay more than 30% of their income, and they're not going to have very high incomes. And so we then use that as a starting point of putting together projects. They may have many other needs. They may require support. They may be disabled. They may have many other requirements also. But the first requirement is uh, their income position. At what point did you start thinking about expanding your housing internationally? How did you select which country to go into? Well, it was an accident, 
really. For the first um, 10 years of the company's existence, I never really thought about uh, going outside of Victoria. Um, the ambitions of the organisation was to provide as much housing for people in need within Victoria and Victoria alone. And uh, what happened was that the I was approached by a housing international housing rights organization that uh, had assisted the government of East Timor, Timor-Leste as we call it, to write its constitution over property rights, uh, that aspect of its con constitution. So it wanted to, uh, a year on from the inauguration of the country, um, it wanted to see how far uh, property rights had been uh, encouraged to be developed by the government. And so they wanted to set up a convention and came along to me to see if I would partially fund it. And I said no, which shocked them. And uh, they said they were horrified by my immediate response and asked me why we wouldn't do it. And I said, because we, we provide housing. We don't uh, fund conferences. And, uh, and so in, they were just a bit annoyed, but said, well, if you think you're so special, uh, why don't you come along to the conference and see if you can provide housing to anybody? So I thought, okay, well, given you advanced invitation to me, I'll go and do it. And that's when I was sort of exposed to the extremely poor conditions a lot of people live in. After this short break, Steve shares his tips for managing a global non-profit. Community Housing Limited expanded under Steve's leadership and now has almost 11,000 properties under management and around 420 staff globally. Most of the properties in Australia are rented out as those living in them are unlikely to afford to buy. However, in other markets overseas, the situation is different due to cultural differences in the way people acquire housing. CHL is now in Chile, Timor-Leste, Papua New Guinea, Peru, India, Indonesia, and even Rwanda. Yes, we, we, we have operations there. Um, the operations are much more about uh, building projects which are affordable to the poorer parts of the community and, uh, and, then, um, and then selling them to them, you know, and creating relations. A classic situation would be Chile, for example. In Chile, there is a first homeowner grant, but only available to poorer people. Uh, we would uh, um, essentially build a project which might be, you know, two thirds of the price of uh, the average housing around, and then we would approach banks and try and encourage banks to take on uh, poorer people who were employed. And then we would tie up the uh, poorer people with a first-time owner grant, which was not too easy to apply for, and uh, connect them to a bank. And then they would buy a home, which was a lot cheaper, and then they would be secure. So that's the kind of uh, classic type of framework. 
every country is different. Uh, in Timor, it was much more difficult. Uh, there were no property rights. There was no public funding for housing, no ability to bring in private investment. So what we did was we didn't operate as a housing provider for the first 10 years. We we essentially went out and trained people in construction skills and uh, to secure a job in the knowledge that if they had a regular income, that one day they may be able to provide for their own housing. And uh, and we sort of waited for property rights to turn up, which would allow housing credit to appear. And it took uh, another 10 years for property rights to be established. But we trained an awful lot of people. We built an awful lot of projects. We built schools. We still do all of that. And uh, we also build housing. And uh, so we, we do new, we've done numerous projects in Timor. And, uh, but we started on the basis of, you know, teach, teach a person to fish and then, and then they can provide themselves with a meal for life, you know, food for life rather than simply provide something which is a one-off. So it was a bit of a different methodology. Is this solution to the issue of affordable housing actually providing more housing or is it also about lowering the price of the housing that already exists in the market I think it's a I think it's a variable solution I think a lot of the reasons that housing is expensive is because it's very you know it takes a long time to plan prepare and deliver housing uh, because of all of the regulations and controls which uh, of approvals, which uh, build a lot of cost into the delivery of housing. Then there is, uh, of course, the so that's that's a cost element. Then there is simply the you know, the action of the market itself, and there not being enough houses, which uh, elevates the price of housing, and so. A combination of supply and uh, production does impact a lot of the uh, cost factors of housing. Then I think having an unrestrained market, which doesn't balance, let's say, tenants' needs with landlords' um, requirements for investment, is... Uh, another feature. I'll give you an example. In places such as Austria or Germany, Germany, the the rights of landlords and the rights of tenants are much uh, more closely balanced. So houses don't uh, gallop away in value to the same extent, and um, and is much more affordable for tenants. And then tenants can have much longer term leases. Um, they also have other responsibilities. Some, you know, they have to sort of take care of the inside of the house, and uh, and really in these instances, you know, housing is a lot more affordable compared to the incomes of people, and uh, and you don't hear uh, Germans complaining about whether they can buy or house or not. Uh, most Germans would lease a home, and uh, it doesn't bother them. And the last time I looked, uh, Germany didn't have a bad economy. 
So I think this kind of unrestrained market, really, which benefits investors and homeowners to such an extent in Australia, creates this uh, rental problem, uh, you know, rental affordability problem, and housing affordability problem more generally to such an extent. And uh, and and it's um, it's, it's kind of that's the real reason uh, that this exists. This problem. I think it needs to be a more balanced uh, market, which uh, um, balances the needs of the house household with the owner much more, isn't it? So. Do you think about things like um, like company culture, etc., et amongst your team um, when you've got people working in different different locations and dealing with? you know, culture kind of like flows on to your clients as well, um, which are obviously people um, renting homes, etc. Do you, do you think much about the culture internally in, in your business? I think it's very important, the culture. Uh, culture is um, obviously led by uh, the mission and the board of directors, the senior management, and held by all of the staff and so uh, taking care of the culture and uh, ensuring that one has as much unanimity as possible in outlook amongst uh, everybody uh, who is part of this uh, mission is extremely important. If you have large divergences in culture, that's what starts to uh, be extremely destructive and if you have one group of staff who think they're better than another group of staff uh, then uh, and start to go off on their own journey, then that's also very dangerous to the culture of an organisation. So um, we are very, like most not-for-profits, we have very high um, uh, staff support for the mission of the organisation which one way or the other, is the reason to a greater or less extent why people work for the organisation. It assists us no end. I mean, I think it's much easier for ourselves to have uh, staff support for the company and what it's doing than, let's say, a bank. I don't want to put down banks, but it's uh, the levels of um, staff satisfaction that a number of private companies have traditionally is much lower than not-for-profits have and uh, certainly we're similar to many other not-for-profits in enjoying very high staff satisfaction levels. Do you find differences in the way that that culture plays out in the different locations that you have around the world? Yes, yes, we do. I mean, inevitably, I mean, people have different languages. Uh, They come from different cultural backgrounds, but that's also the case in Australia too, and uh, if, for example, you have a team who are working, they are uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander working with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, it would have a very different culture to and internal expectations to a team which is, uh, let's say, working in India on producing some affordable housing there. 
However, um, the goals are the same in the end. The goals are the same to produce a, a good quality, affordable housing product which is well managed and well maintained for the people who occupy it. And that is the principal reason what binds the organization together, really. And that is not distinct between the different countries. If you were talking to someone that wanted to sort of enter the not-for-profit sector or, you know, start start their own non-profit and they have their own sort of mission and goals of what they want to achieve, do you have any advice that you can give to other, other like, smaller non-profit organizations as to, um, like, how you build an effective mission and, and culture and build that enthusiasm around what what they're trying to achieve? The first piece of advice is that uh, the organization needs to uh, go beyond simply having, trying to think that it can live off donations and philanthropy. Um, One of the disadvantages of donations of philanthropy is it's very... It's limited and is not uh, never-ending. There's been some very successful not-for-profit charities that have managed to get ongoing donations or so, but it's hard to do that. So one needs to be, uh, you know, not-for-profit, but uh, if you like, profit-for-purpose type organisation. And if you want to have a real impact on the world then you really need to have a replicable uh, delivery framework. And a replicable delivery framework means that you need to have the support of people in the community, governments, uh, private partners, and create solutions which, if you like, can become commonplace in the world or so, or replicable. And also, one shouldn't keep one's intellectual property to oneself. One should be open source and uh, make uh, what one is trying to deliver available to anybody else to deliver as well. Now, that would be very different to how private sector operates. The private sector um, wants to protect its intellectual property and wants to, uh, you know, tie people down to confidentiality agreements all the time, which we do do as because we're in partnership with private sector entities. But ultimately, we're trying to <clears throat> change the world and we're trying to <clears throat> create a um, replicable uh, projects and opportunities which other people can copy. So inevitably, we are open source and we have to operate in a different way. Given everything that you've achieved thus far with Community Housing Limited and and also like where you've come from personally and your background and the opportunities that you're now able to create for for other people, you know, that are in a low-income situation, how do you feel? Oh, um, well, I'm, I'm happy to have been able to be part of an organization that delivers um, a reasonable amount to the people who secure the home or a job 
or um, some benefit through the organization to date. I, the more that we do, though, the more apparent it becomes how little we've achieved. And, uh, and although we're the largest in Australia, we're, we're nowhere need, near the kind of resolving the needs of people in Australia or elsewhere. So I'm just sort of keen on finding new ways of doing more and increasing the output. That's really all that, how I feel. And it hasn't really changed over the years. I'm the same uh, in terms of that general feeling as I was 25 years ago. And, and it's the same. Um, I am pretty happy with some of the individual solutions being provided to people. They're not easily replicable in each instance, but they're specialized. And uh, I'm proud that we've been able to achieve those and I'm sure that they're doing a lot. Building a Unicorn is a Lawson Media production. You can find out more about the show at our website, buildingaunicorn.com. This episode was hosted and scripted by me, Christopher Lawson, mixing and mastering by James Parkinson. Nick Buchanan composed our theme track and Andrew Millist designed our artwork. We'd love to connect with you on social media, so head across to our Facebook and Twitter. Just search for Build a Unicorn. And there's never been a better time to get your hands on some great unicorn merch. We've got t-shirts, we've got stickers, we've got hoodies. Head across to podmerch.co. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Thanks for listening.